Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Climate change has become increasingly important for the transatlantic relationship, and perhaps we can all remember the Kyoto Protocol from 1997, which was one of the first international agreements that addressed the challenges that climate change poses for the planet. The goal of the Kyoto Protocol was to reduce global warming by limiting greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere to, quote, a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. The Kyoto Protocol led to the Paris Agreement of 2015, which aims to prevent an increase in global temperature to under 2 degrees Celsius. The scientific consensus is that an increase in temperatures over 2 degrees would cause catastrophic flooding and other climate disruptions with devastating consequences, not only to humans, but also to animals, plants, and the ecosystem as a whole. 195 countries signed the Paris Agreement, including the U.S., but President Trump has promised to withdraw the U.S. from that agreement as soon as possible, which, legally speaking, means in 2020. Of course, climate change is still a polarizing political topic in the U.S., but it is less so in Europe and most of the rest of the world, where the consensus among both scientists and politicians is indeed that climate change is real and poses a serious threat to the future of our planet. Today, however, we won't be focusing on climate change, politics, or science. Instead, we will focus on some cutting-edge ideas about the environment in literature by examining the history of the fairly new academic discipline of eco-criticism. We will also look at the representation of environmental degradation in the literature of a rapidly industrializing Germany in the 19th century. Here with me today to help us understand the importance of the environment in literary history is a fantastic professor of German studies and eco-criticism expert, Dr. Alexander Phillips. Welcome, Dr. Phillips. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be back in Hamburg. It's great that you're here. Dr. Phillips holds a PhD in German studies from Cornell University. He also studied at the University of California, Irvine, and Humboldt University in Berlin. His research focuses on ecological aesthetics and literature, and he focuses specifically on the 19th century in Germany. His writing has appeared in the academic journal Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment, as well as Inside Higher Education. Since 2015, he has been teaching German studies and conducting research at the European Division of the University of Maryland in Germany, and this fall he will continue his work in India. And what is the name of the university in India? I'll be joining the English department at Ashoka University. Great. We wish you luck there. So, Dr. Phillips, I read a number of definitions of eco-criticism, and the one that struck me as being the most thought-provoking was from Oxford Bibliographies, where one reads, Eco-criticism is a broad way for literary and cultural scholars to investigate the global ecological crisis through the intersection of literature, culture, and the physical environment. To repeat, eco-criticism is a broad way for literary and cultural scholars to investigate the global ecological crisis through the intersection of literature, culture, and the physical environment. Dr. Phillips, can you help us unpack that definition, please? Yes, I also find it a striking definition. It captures the basic kinds of questions that eco-criticism asks. So in what ways does this book or this film or this artwork or whatever reflect the non-human? What assumptions about nature or the environment are built into whatever it is that we are investigating? 
what does it say about how nature is valued or is not valued or maybe should be valued? But uh, the thing that I stumble over is what it says about global ecological crisis. So sure, eco-criticism comes about because of global ecological stress. But I have three problems with the definition. First, readers and scholars can and do ask eco-critical questions of pre-industrial literature without forcing that literature into 20th and 21st century problems. Second, eco-criticism is not necessarily about studying the crisis, whatever we mean by the crisis. We're studying cultural products, that is, fictional and non-fictional texts, film, works of art, etc., and I would argue, too, that those things are valuable on, those, on their own terms. Um, eco-criticism doesn't necessarily have to be pegged to whatever historical problems we're facing in this moment. And finally, what is the global crisis in the sing- singular? That is, are we talking about nuclear pro- proliferation or the dumping of hazardous waste from the so-called first world and the so-called third world? Uh, maybe it's global warming, but... Global warming also doesn't mean the same thing for everybody everywhere. So for me here in Europe last winter, global warming meant that that we had a phenomenon of a warming Arctic, but cold air over the continents, over North America and over Europe. So global warming meant for me that I had to wear a pair of thicker gloves. But for a subsistence farmer in Africa, global warming might mean watching uh, one's farm get overtaken by the Sahara Desert. The reason why I chose this definition, because it seemed to prescribe that practitioners of eco-criticism must also be pragmatic advocates or activists, or indeed agitators for environmental protection. Is this how practitioners of the field actually see themselves as eco-scholars, but maybe a little bit as eco-warriors as well? Mm -hmm. I think the political stakes are definitely there. But then I would also say that criticism is always political in one way or another. Uh, When it comes to pragmatics, I would say that depends on whom you ask. So some eco-critics understand their work as valuing or rather revaluing texts that are in one way or another close to nature because of their political orientation or their detailed description of uh, the non-human world or something else. So we can think of the tradition of American nature writing, which includes authors like um, Henry David Thoreau or Aldo Leopold or also Annie Dillard. So the idea is that that kind of writing evokes nature or orients us towards the non-human world in a way that promotes some sort of environmental consciousness. And then that consciousness would translate into maybe a more ecological lifestyle or perhaps some kind of political action. So for some eco-critics, pragmatics is about promoting environmental science, not just to the public, but to other literary scholars. So so so-called practical eco-criticism is in part a response to challenges or critiques of science coming out of humanities departments, a conflict that got really acrimonious in the 1990s when eco-criticism first came together as a subfield with, uh, with its own organizations and literary journals devoted to it. So the project for practical eco-critics is about developing an interpretation of texts that are also rooted in the sciences. And I think the best statement of that particular school of eco-criticism might be Glenn Love's 2003 book, Practical Eco-Criticism. But other branches of eco-criticism understand their political stakes differently. So eco-justice criticism calls attention to the unequal ways in which environmental problems affect different communities, as in global warming in 2018 means uncomfortable temperatures for me, but maybe starvation for someone else. Eco-justice also alerts us to the ways in which nature writing, which is prized in other branches of eco-criticism, is often, although importantly not always, about the experience of white heterosexual males. A lot of eco-critical energy right now is devoted to a critique of anthropocentrism. And can you, before you go on, can you just define that? Anthropocentrism. Yes. Yeah. So anthropocentrism is a political, philosophical way of looking at the world that sees everything else in the world as in some way or another oriented around the human. It places the, it essentially places the human at the center of, uh, of all the cosmos. So the way that this would work out in practice would be seeing nature as a thing that is available for us to use as we choose. So, you know, we need to warm our houses, so we need to get the coal and 
will lob off the top of a mountain, for instance, would be an example of anthropocentric thinking. So the way I, I understand this is that nature doesn't have any value in its own right. Its value is constructed out of its use or the use it might have for human beings. Essentially, yes, although much of the critical work is devoted to less explicit examples of anthropocentrism. So conservation or conservationism can also be anthropocentric. I mean, it's anthropocentric to think of nature as a place where we go to get away from the humdrum of urban industrial life. Mm -hmm. So we've been discussing uh, a lot about this definition of eco-criticism, and I think we've seen that it's quite complicated to understand. And indeed, one single sentence doesn't do justice to the movement. So let's actually uh, take a historical step backwards here, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. So the modern intellectual origins of ecological thinking emerged in both Europe and the U.S. in the 18th and 19th centuries. Could you talk a little bit about the origins and development of ecological thinking? Certainly. In some sense, that's a hard question to answer because I don't think there's one story to be told here. I mean, what we might call ecological thinking appears in all kinds of places and across the political spectrum. But I think we can pull out a few important milestones that at least give us a kind of general framework for environmentalisms. And I would uh, speak in the plural here. So obviously, environmental movements have to be understood in the context of industrial production and its fallout. The scale of environmental transformation under industrialism gives environmental politics of any stripes their shape. So to cite one example from the American context in the 19th century, you have Thoreau at Walden Pond and his retreat into nature is also a reaction to an emerging industrial culture as he makes clear. And if we think about his lengthy criticism of a capitalist economy on human life in the first chapter of Walden and his retreat famously is also incomplete. So uh, if we consider, for example, the scene in which he's sitting in the garden having his reveries and suddenly the idyllic experience of nature is disrupted by the shriek of a train whistle going by, mm -hmm. which is actually, I mean, that's a common trope, especially, I mean, especially in American literature. And uh, uh, that's been investigated by Leo Marx in a very classic study called The Machine in the Garden. That's a great name, by the way. Oh, yeah, Leo Mar. yes. <laughs> uh, machine in the Garden. The Machine in the Garden, yeah. And also his name is great, too. Yeah. We might also consider <laughs> in the 20th century uh, texts like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And that book is a good one to look at because it opens with a, a parable for tomorrow. And the idea of the parable is that the poison DDT has seeped into the environment and killed off all the birds. So the inhabitants of this fictional town wake up one day and they realize that they are surrounded by an uncanny silence. And I like that because I would hasten to point out that this is where environmental problems are also aesthetic problems, because the people in the parable know that something is wrong with nature because they aren't hearing something beautiful. And from that, they deduce that there's something that is somehow not normal. So we're positing some condition of normal and then, uh, and then noticing an absence that tells us that there's something wrong. And then, of course, we also have scientific developments, particularly the paradigm shift brought around by evolutionary theory. Uh, the big intervention of the origin of species, as Darwin puts it, and I recommend everyone read Origin of Species, is that uh, the knowledge that species change over time forces us to look at nature in a new way. So we can think of, say, Linnaeus, who uh, invented the modern system of taxonomizing uh, plant and animal life forms. So Linnaeus's taxonomy was about mapping out creation as it was given to us by God. But evolutionary theory forces us to think about larger timescales, that the world around us has a temporal depth that is so vast that it boggles the mind. And it's one of the things that makes Origin of Species exciting to read. The other thing that I would point out that I particularly like about Origin of Species as someone who focuses on literary realism is that Darwin is also a fantastic descriptive writer, and his argument gains, at least in my view, a lot of force through its literariness. And in that way, I'd say Origin of Species is ripe fruit for eco-criticism, and I couldn't recommend it highly enough. I'd add, too, that Germany is important here in this history as well. So the term ecology is related to the German term ökologie, which was actually coined by naturalist Ernst Haeckel. It's from the Greek oikos for household, 
And oikos is, of course, also the root word for economy. And Hickel has a lot to do with our ideas about ecology as a matter of balance or harmony. And when was he writing? Uh, he coined ökologie in the 1860s. And so he was active, and I don't have the dates right off the top of my head, but he was active as a naturalist from the 1860s up until the first couple decades of the 20th century. And then, of course, finally, we have to note to an answer in, in thinking about the genealogy of environmentalisms, nuclear technology, and the atom bomb. Global warming and nuclear radiation, I would say, pose the biggest conceptual challenges because of their scale. So with, I mean, with global warming, of course, you have human impact actually not just localized in specific landscapes, but extending across the entire planetary system. And the same, of course, goes for, for the nuclear threat. The ruins of reactor number four at Chernobyl will be a problem for humans to worry about for thousands and thousands of years. And we don't understand these problems if we can't think about the environment beyond our immediate surroundings and around the entire planet. That's that's quite interesting. And I, I want to go back to this idea you had about environmentalisms, that there are multiple ones of them, as well as this aesthetic awareness that oftentimes when we have too limited an understanding of, of ecology, we only say smell a stinky river or mm -hmm. a stinking lake and note that something's wrong. But but indeed the vastness, the, the things that are not open to our perception mm -hmm. or senses can be happening without us knowing it. Indeed, like the Flint water crisis mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. kids were getting lead poisoning and they didn't even know it for years um, because while the water just tasted a little bit different, people mm -hmm. got used to it and just mm -hmm. thought that's how water tasted. So, so we, we tend to notice environmental degradation primarily, as you said, aesthetically. Mm -hmm. We hear that birds are no longer singing, so there has to be a brow, or we see a lake that has scum on it, or we smell something bad. And so there's an, an immediate aesthetic reaction that we're doing something wrong to nature. It seems that one of the important aspects of eco-criticism is taking that aesthetic jump It allows us to look at, say, literature historically, so we're not smelling, uh, say, a, a polluted lake in Germany, but we can actually read uh, a novelist writing about that from the 19th century. And, and that is, I think, a very important way for us to aesthetically capture um, an environmental crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that getting at that is, uh, well, is the critical project behind eco-criticism. And I think that The, the, the reason that this is a big deal is that we're used to thinking about environmental problems in uh, terms of the so-called hard sciences, STEM fields. So, I mean, how much CO2 is there in the atmosphere? What am I reading on my Geiger counter, etc.? But the, the aesthetic dimension really is how... It's not, it's not just how we perceive it, it's how we understand it. It's how we, it's how we make sense of, of what we're doing to, to the planet. When you look at a landscape and say, this is not normal, that is an aesthetic judgment. And the limits of our perceptions are also an issue in how we understand the environment. I mean, uh, radiation is a really good example because radiation, you don't see it, you don't smell it. I mean, unless you are actually in an atomic blast, you don't, you yeah. don't immediately feel it, but it has an impact on your body. It has an impact on nature. It disrupts the quote-unquote natural functioning of, uh, of living things. Yeah, it, indeed it does. That's really interesting. Okay, st sticking with the history of environmental thinking in Europe and the U.S., there have been, I think, about three important movements that most people might understand. And we talked a little bit about, say, conservation already. But the three that I think we should look at now are preservation, conservation, and deep ecology. As far as I understand these, preservation means leaving nature unspoiled, mm -hmm. so preserving it in its natural state. Conservation is something like the hunter's ethos, where we can manage, we can respectively manage nature. We can hunt wolves selectively or hunt deer selectively to maintain an ecological balance so we conserve nature rather than preserve it. And then there's something called deep ecology, which I'm afraid I don't understand well enough. So maybe you can help us understand how these three dominant movements are interacting. Certainly. Yeah, in the United States context, at least, those three movements are, are some of the key columns of what we might broadly term 
American environmentalism. So yes, we can start by defining deep ecology. Deep ecology is a, I guess you would call it a radical strain of environmentalism that values a sort of radical return to nature. I mean, you could call it a kind of, you could call it a kind of extreme back to nature way of thinking. It's very closely associated with uh, Murray Bookchin, who was an ecological thinker with uh, strong anarchist tendencies. Deep ecology values a kind of closeness to nature. It's very much connected with a kind of, it's very much connected with a kind of romanticism. It envisions an ideal of human communities that uh, are living in what you might call a kind of future primitive primitivist state that is bound up again with, with natural rhythms. You might call it a, an, an ideology of the renaturization of uh, the human species. Okay, so I think maybe we can understand it better as a contrast between preservation than conservation then. Maybe mm-hmm. that's an easier way to understand it. Yes, because the key difference between uh, deep ecology and preservationism and conservationism would be that preservationism and conservationism are still very much bound into the way that we live in industri- in modernity. Yeah, that is that deep eco- So deep ecology is actually a, a, a proposes a more radical abandonment of what we assume are the trappings of modern life, li- living in cities, following a capitalist industrial mode of production and consumption, etc. Would it be fair to say that while preservation and conservation tend towards anthropocentrism, deep ecology actually is the one that, at its sort of heart, rejects anthropocentrism? That human beings are indeed the center of things. In theory, yes. At the same time, deep ecology can play into a couple of political camps. So on the one hand, um, deep ecology is supposed to be a, a very liberating set of politics. At the same time, I personally don't see how, or I, I personally don't believe that deep ecology really gets away from uh, the kinds of political trappings that that we're experiencing now as we live in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. So, for example, the, the concept of community is politically fraught. Yeah. Who's in the I mean, who's in this community? I mean, one good example might be might be Edward Abbey, yeah, who has I mean, he goes and lives in the desert. He works for the Park Service. He is living in some sense a kind of deep ecological project. But I mean, Edward Abbey also, if you read his writings, he tilts into some politically difficult areas from the perspective of a leftist environmentalism. So for instance, if you read Desert Solitaire, which is this classic of American nature writing, uh, Edward Abbey has ways of talking about the landscape that unfortunately reproduce very gendered ways of thinking about nature. As uh, He compares the landscape at one point to a woman's body. And uh, this goes to a kind of problematic way of thinking about nature that sees uh, nature and women's bodies together as uh, as a site of male adventure and male conquest. Mm. Edward Abbey also favored a border wall. Okay, so we have all these different trends of ecological thinking, and they've all sort of come together, at least in the study of the humanities, to form this discipline which we call eco-criticism, which I'm already realizing that's probably too narrow. We should call it there are many eco-criticisms, plural. Indeed, you already mentioned a term that I had been familiar with, which was Mm eco-justice criticism. So we've seen the importance of this ecological thinking and the basis of this new discipline, which we call eco-criticism. Do you want to just get into a little bit more into the differentiation of this movement? Sometimes we look at movements in waves. Mm -hmm. There's first wave, second wave, third wave feminism. Is eco-criticism moving through waves? Is it branching out? How do we understand the broad eco-criticisms now? Oh, the wave metaphor definitely applies to eco-criticism, and uh, other people have done that kind of work. So the basic taxonomy, I suppose, would be that first wave eco-criticism comes about, it has its origins in the late 70s and 80s, and uh, is constituted really as a more formalized subdiscipline in the 1990s in the United States with the founding of the Association for the Study of Literature Environment and publications that seek to collect the individual works of uh, eco-criticism that had appeared in earlier years. Um, The eco-criticism reader 
was uh, in the 1990s one of the key texts for inaugurating this as a new field right along, say, with post-colonial studies or queer studies or what other, whatever other kinds of branches you might find in a literature department. And much of the early work was based around essentially constructing a history of uh, ecological writing. And that's often the case, I think, with, uh, with, a, with a new field. I mean, what is... It was esta- essentially the creation of a canon. Essentially the creation of a canon, okay. exactly. So a lot of the early work uh, had to do with nonfiction, was looking at the tradition of American nature writing, was also very much, although not exclusively, bound to literature connected with the American West. And so that's then where you get second... Uh, second wave eco-criticism that seeks to expand the field, say, beyond texts that are obviously environmental in terms of their politics or their aesthetics. Such as Walden. Yeah, such as Walden. So yeah. moving beyond the canonical texts. Right. So questions for right. So questions for second wave eco-criticism might be some of the eco-justice issues that I've raised. Or do we have to talk about quote-unquote pure or quote-unquote unspoiled nature? How do we think about, um, I mean, how do we think about some of the, quote, despoiled landscapes that you might find on the East Coast of the United States? Do we have to bracket those out of our environmental thinking? The answer, I think, is clearly no. And if we want the, if, if we want eco-criticism to be a thing, to have legs, then we can't necessarily focus our studies exclusively on, on, on wilderness, Some romantic notion of the purity of unspoiled nature, which it just occurred to me, of course, has everything to do with post-colonial thinking Mm -hmm. and post-colonial criticism, Mm -hmm. because while while Europeans were colonizing and industrializing other parts of the world, settling them, tearing down forests and things, there was also this tendency to romanticize the unspoiled wilderness. So part of the colonial project one must say now after eco-criticism mm-hmm. has shown us this way is that colonialism and ecological thinking ecological analysis have always gone hand in hand and i would probably say even going back to the roman empire mm-hmm. in the west now that i think about mm-hmm. it but so uh that's the second wave yeah then what happened third wave is there a third wave i suppose um you <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily call myself a third wave. Is third wave, if there is a third wave, is it more about activism, being scholar activists or something? Or were the first waivers and the second waivers all scholar activists? I would say that uh, the first waivers um, really are the ones who were the strongest scholar activists. And I would say that's one of the big virtues of, um, of, I mean, there are many virtues of first wave eco-criticism. It was an important, it was and remains an important intervention. But, mm-hmm. um, but I think that the legacy of activism is a, uh, is a lasting one and an important one for those of us who are, who are younger and working in the field. Great. So now we know a little bit more about the history of ecological thinking and a little bit more about the eco-criticisms that exist. Let's go on to your specialty. Mm-hmm representations of environmental issues in German literature of the 19th century. Uh, But first, on a personal note, how did you develop a passion for this field specifically? My dissertation advisor once told me that we all write our own biographies. (laughs) (laughs) And um, that is true with me to a certain extent. So I grew up in San Diego in California. And that's a city that traces its origins as a political unit to the late 19th and early or the, the late 18th and early 19th centuries. But really, when you go there, what you experience is a city that developed almost entirely after the Second World War. And what that means is that it also embodies many of the sins of post-war American urban planning. To give San Diego some credit, it's improved in a few key ways. But nevertheless, the city is heavily suburban. It is built for the automobile. And its neighborhoods are really designed for, well, I'd say designed for loneliness. And what that means is that issues of development and land use and what that means for human communities were always a big topic for me growing up. And so years later, when I started reading around in uh, German literature and specifically uh, late 19th century German literature, I was surprised to see that some of those concerns that I'd always carried with me were reflected in the literature of the period. That is that, that the authors were thinking about similar topics, albeit in a very different historical context. And sometimes it was in very subtle ways. So, for instance, uh, in Tero Fontana's 1896 novel, Effie Briest, 
one of the characters remarks about how hard it is to now tell the difference between Berlin and Charlottenburg. And mm -hmm. Charlottenburg is was at one point an independent city and now is a neighborhood in Western Berlin. And Germany experienced urbanization and industrialization very rapidly. I'd recommend anyone listening go and compare maps of Cologne or Vienna from the 1840s and then again from the 1890s. In less than one lifetime, those places went from being contained within what was essentially what was essentially their medieval and uh, early modern city limits to having more or less the footprint that they have today. It's a dramatic difference. So I got into eco-criticism because I wanted to be able to understand these problems, both in the context of Germany in the 19th century, but also in my lived 21st century reality. The more we learn about this field, the more we realize these issues have been in a variety of different societies uh, throughout history. And eco-criticism was sort of the impulse mm -hmm. to start just calling them out and naming them and mm -hmm. studying them. So some of your recent scholarship is on the work of the German novelist Wilhelm Rabe. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us who he was? Uh, Wilhelm Rabe was, he was a career author who published fiction continuously between 1855 and the late 19th century when he hung up his pen for the last decade of his life. So he was one who was really actually trying to make a living off of writing, whereas a lot of other uh, authors of the period had some sort of other main day job. And he's a significant figure in the German literary history of the period, but he's also had a very rocky reception in, in the 20th century particularly. So if listeners haven't heard his name before, it's probably because he has only been sporadically translated. And what translations there are, are really mostly marketed to an academic audience. He was also unfortunately discredited because he was appropriated by National Socialist Scholarship in the 1930s. One of his novels does traffic in anti-Semitic stereotypes. So that was brought out and really overdetermined, I would say, as a way to paint the author brown. But his novels, and especially the works composed from the 1870s until the end of his career, are really well worth a read. Jeffrey Sammons, who wrote the Bible on Rabba, uh, he called his he called Rabba's fiction the fiction of the alternative community, and that's the title of the book, Wilhelm Rabba, the fiction of the alternative community. And the alternative here is to social the social transformations of an industrializing Germany, and it's a really it's a really tempting fiction, but it's also a politically ambivalent one. One of Rabba's late novels is called Fister's Mill, which is set at the end of the 19th century in Braunschweig, which is just about two hours away from Hamburg by car. The novel focuses on the sugar beet industry there at the time and water pollution. Could you talk a little bit more about the novel and how it illustrates some important ideas about ecology and the environment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that novel, Fister's Mühle, is the German title and appeared in 1884, and it was based off of real events. So the historical context here is that the Duchy of Braunschweig was a center for beet sugar production in the 19th century. And the thing about beet sugar production is that it's really devastating to local waterways because one of the main byproducts is hydrogen sulfide, which prompts the growth of microorganisms that use up all the oxygen in a body of water. Hydrogen sulfide is also the substance that gives human farts their characteristic smell. So the area smelled genuinely terrible after the beet harvest when the beets were being processed for sugar. Quick plot summary. So the novel is narrated by a character named Ebert Pfister, who's vacationing with his wife Emmy at the family's mill before it's torn down to make way for a new factory. And he tells a story about his father who ran the mill. And so by the time the narrative starts, the beer garden side of the business had more or less overtaken the milling business. And unfortunately for the mill, a beet sugar factory opens up upstream and releases hydrogen sulfide into the water. And the stench drives all the customers away and ruins the entire business. The father goes to court and wins, but by then the mill is insolvent. And so the father dies. The son has already relocated to Berlin where where he's working, and he sells the mill off to, to industrial developers. And it raises all kinds of questions about um, how ecological crisis is perceived. It's a, it's, a, it's a book that's very much about smell. One of the very negative reviews was that the book smelled, that is that it, 
in both senses, I guess in both senses that the book was not good, but also that, you know, it, it literally smelled bad, that you could smell the hydrogen sulfide through the pages. Which means it's wonderfully descriptive writing. Oh, it's well. wonderfully descriptive writing. Yeah, it uh, it sold incredibly poorly. It did, the first print run didn't sell at all. But I have a uh, first edition of 1884. It's from my prized possessions. Yeah. Excellent. Does it um, smell? Uh, only like an old book. <laughs> okay. I'm just curious about the real history of yeah. sugar beet production in Braunschweig. What, mm-hmm. Whatever happened to these waterways over the course of time? I mean, if, apparently you could sue to yeah. prevent you pollution could. of the water, and sometimes you might actually win. But what actually happened with the industry there? I'm- well, so what was actually going on was that, um, yes, there were a series of trials in Germany. Um, the so-called Wasserprozesse. And the one on which Fister's Müller was based was only one. And I mean, essentially what happened to a lot of these businesses is uh, what happens, <laughs> what happens when, when, uh, when Dave, often what happens when David goes against Goliath in a court. Even if you win, it can be a kind of Pyrrhic victory. And just because, I mean, just because, uh, say, a group of industrialists are forced to pay a fine or whatever, doesn't, that doesn't save your business. Nor does it necessarily clean up the water overnight. No. The problem in Braunschweig was that the beet sugar harvest happened in late fall. And so the production of beet sugar happened between the months of around December and February. And in the case of Braunschweig, what happened was um, they actually experienced times when the water supply when the water supply broke down and the water was undrinkable because it was so filled with hydrogen sulfide. And this came to a head in the winter of 1890 and 1891 when the water was undrinkable. And Wilhelm Rabe has a letter to his daughter about this, just about what a pigsty the town is. Eventually, the long-term solution was that the city improved its purification facilities. So, so it wasn't at least such a problem for the tap water. They didn't close down the sugar beets factories. Mm. They found an alternative solution, which sounds like a lot of the reactions we have to environmental degradation. Right. We tried to find a technological right. solution right. to the damage that's right. being done. Right. I mean, essentially what happened to beet sugar production was, well, was capitalism. The beet sugar production continued into the early 20th century. And then because of whatever market forces, and I'm not clear on this point, but um, but eventually shifted away. The factory, um, it's called Grautheim, is still there. And so if you drive those two hours to Braunschweig, you can actually walk along the route that uh, Wilhelm Rabe used to walk along with his um, Stammtisch, called, uh, the, the group was called uh, Die Kleiderzeller. And they used to walk along this path to uh, to a restaurant called Der Grüne Jäger. And so he walked right along the stream. Their Grüne Jäger is not far away from the factory. And so he he observed what was happening in the stream firsthand on these evening walks. I mean, I do recommend going out there. Der Grüne Jäger is a, is a nice place for a, for a day trip. Excellent recommendation. Let's turn to another one of Doraba's late works. And this is called The Birdsong Papers. Could you talk a little bit about that novel, please, and the importance of the environment in this one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Birdsong Papers is available in English, and I do recommend it. The German title is Die Aachen des Vogelsangs. That novel is from 1896. It's set in a small settlement outside of a larger town, in the, and it stretches from the periods a period of about 1850s into the 1890s. It's essentially a fictional version of Braunschweig. Now, the Vogelsang, the bird song, is a small settlement outside of a larger town, and the novel follows the lives of three characters. There's the narrator, Karl Krumhardt, and Krumhardt grows up to become a successful lawyer in Berlin. There's Helene Trotzendorf, and she's an interesting character. She's the daughter of a German emigre who returns back to Germany after her father loses uh, his fortune and nearly lands in Sing Sing Prison. So he's in the States. He's in the States, yeah. And this is a, this is another kind of interesting trope about the United States, that he, her father goes from being a millionaire to losing all of his money and nearly going in prison and then getting his money back. Uh, it's a it's a kind of it's it's a kind of stereotype of the United States as as this land of uh, boundless hee haw capitalism. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's Felton Andres, who's really the subject of the story. And he pursues, so he's in love with Helena. He pursues her to the United States. She marries a wealthy man in Chicago. And so he returns to the Fogelsang without the girl. 
what's what's happened to the Vogelsang or the Birdsong neighborhood over the course of the time frame is that the, the city has expanded and swallowed up the neighborhood, and so all of the old residents are selling off their land for uh, for further development. So uh, so the the old houses that have been families for generations are going and being replaced by these massive anonymous apartment blocks. And Felton Andres's house is the last one. Towards the end of the novel, he decides to engage in this radical parting from bourgeois notions of property. So he burns all his stuff. And then when he's almost done, he opens the house and he invites everyone in the neighborhood in to come in and plunder the house. So the novel deals a lot with with issues, again, of, of pollution, urbanization, but also but also the kind of reification of nature. As, uh, because as the city expands and swallows up this old neighborhood, nature becomes something that is out beyond the city limits. It's not, it's not, there, there aren't any gardens anymore because, because that, that all gets paved over. So if you want to go out into nature, you have to, you, you have to go out of the city up onto this hill. Nature, in other words, becomes a thing over there. Yeah. So the production of the space, the transformation of the space promotes a, a very kind of anthropocentric way of thinking. Yeah. Here is the world of the human. And then if I want to get away from that, then I go to this other sort of, reified space just outside of the city limits. Okay. Well, I want to talk about uh, another important topic and another author that you specialize in. And this is the author Adalbert Stifter. And he has these concepts of the Anthropocene Mm -hmm. and the alternative Anthropocene. So first, can you tell us who this Adalbert Stifter was and then help us please understand what these important concepts are? Sure. I should probably start by saying that uh, he doesn't really have the concept of the Anthropocene. That's my reading of Stifter. It's, um, I'm, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means in a second. But, okay. um, but who was Adelbert Stifter? Well, um, he's an Austrian author. By profession, he was actually a school administrator. And he composed a lot of mainly short fiction between the 1830s and his death in 1868, as well as two major novels. There's Der Nachsommer, which has been translated into English as Indian Summer, and a historical novel, Vitico. He's an interesting author because he was a he was a very conservative author. He wrote extensively against what he perceived to be the violent excesses of the 1848 revolution. And what I think makes his fiction so worth reading is that it's very two-sided. So on the one hand, he often gives his stories a sort of moral agenda. He constructs fictional worlds that are rooted in some sort of ethical stability. Yeah? So, so his vision of the universe is, is, one that, um, is one that has an overall moral structure of some kind. And what that actually looks like, I mean, it varies from story to story and in his own, um, and, and in his own writing on poetics. What's interesting is that his ethical universe then always has a kind of dark side. So why is Stifter's work important? for um, the field of eco-criticism. Yeah, so let's start with the Anthropocene then, um, because that's a term that needs some unpacking as well. The term Anthropocene, it's a debate that's happening right now in geosciences. And the term has entered eco-criticism as a kind of useful analytic, although it's also one that is contested for various reasons. So the argument, the basic argument of the Anthropocene is that we are not really any longer in the Holocene. And the Holocene is the geological epoch that began that began with the warming of the Earth about uh, twelve thousand years ago, that brought about the end of the most recent ice age. So officially, according to the geoscientists who get to name these epochs, we are in the Holocene. The Anthropocene, though, it comes from the Greek word anthropos for humans, and it posits that human activities are so extensive and so all-encompassing that they will actually affect the layers of geological strata on the Earth. And what that means is that, hypothetically, someone in the future could go and look at an exposed layer of rock where there are different, there are different, there are different layers for that, that, ref, that reflect different eras of climate history, point to one layer and say, this is the layer that was made up by human carbon emissions. And this is the layer that is made up by human radioactive isotopes. So you could stick... You could stick a golden spike is the kind of literal metaphor, yeah? mm-hmm. or not literal metaphor, but the go- a golden spike is, uh, is the thing you could theoretically stick that spike in there and say, this marks the spot in the stratigraphic layer where humans started pumping carbon into the atmosphere or started setting off nuclear bombs or however you want to define it. But 
while I'm largely on board with a lot of the critiques, I find it too to be useful for thinking about some of the literature of the period. The Anthropocene asks us to imagine about timescales beyond a human lifetime. So for instance, my styrofoam cup doesn't have a history that ends when I'm done with my coffee, but it will have a history as long as that between, say, the initial conquest of the Americas and today. The Anthropocene is an era of human domination of nature, but that domination is also only partial. And I think that's the other thing that's important. It's also a time of, uh, it's also a time of unintended consequences. James Watt, so he didn't intend to create a machine that would warm the planet, for instance. But as we know, that is exactly what the hydrocarbon economy is doing. So to come back to Adelbert Stifter, Adelbert Stifter's alternative Anthropocene is one that weds human control of nature to the vision of a morally perfect universe. And this is something that comes up in a lot of his fiction where we see uh, humans engaged in planning, control, gardening, cultivation of the natural environment. The alternative Anthropocene then is one of no unintended consequences. It's one where human control harmonizes with the natural world, where nature is distinctly produced, but according to nature's laws. So in his big um, Magnus Open Indian Summer, Danach Sommer, the garden is uh, by the character by uh, the character Baron von Riesach. We spend a lot of time in the garden. There are extensive descriptions of the garden. And the way that the garden works basically is that Baron von Riesach is this kind of Promethean figure who understands nature so well that he can plan everything out so it works within nature's laws and not against them. The birds, for instance, delight in serving as pest control because he's given the birds exactly what he needs. But, and here's where you get to the dark side, the birds don't actually know that they're not really free within the garden. Rizak actually compares his garden to an invisible birdcage, for instance, which I find incredibly intriguing. Mm -hmm. What else do you think is important about Stifter and why should we be paying attention to him and his literature? Stifter is significant for, um, I mean, on the one hand, for his level of descriptiveness, it's it's the hallmark of his of his fiction, and he was actually criticized about it, criticized for it at the time. Um, the critic Friedrich Hebel once uh, famously commented that the thing about Stifter is he's the kind of author who would describe an image of Napoleon and be more interested in the poo on Napoleon's heel <laughs> than actually in what's going on in the scene. Descriptive narrative also creates a different kind of experience of time, and that's the really wonderful accomplishment of the novel Indian Summer is that the descriptions are the descriptions are so long and so exhaustive that, that they really slow down time. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the one hand, we're talking about an aesthetics of boredom, which I will say is a very hard sell for undergraduates. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, if you think about the German word for boredom too, Langeweile, mm -hmm. yeah, long while, that which mm -hmm. makes the time or the while mm -hmm long. Um, bore, I mean, boredom has a long philosophical tradition and is in that sense very interesting. And, um, and if one of the critiques of modernity is how, is, is how we experience time, that is that, uh, that, that we live in a time of acceleration, to quote Hamlet, that the time is out of joint. Well, in Stifter, we glimpse a different way of, of experiencing time and experiencing the world more generally. And I, I like to focus maybe now as we conclude about this concept of time a little bit. You talked about the styrofoam cup mm -hmm. that you use will be around for however many hundreds or even thousands of years. And ecological thinking and eco-criticism help us to sort of become more aware of the invisible history, life, and future of, say, everyday products mm -hmm. in much the same way that Karl Marx taught the, the invisible history, life, and future of labor and capital. Yes. So Marx would say, look at that styrofoam cup. It has a complicated history. Mm -hmm. There is a capital that get, went into producing the factory. There are people mm -hmm. who work there. Their lives are affected right. by this. Um, some of the negative consequences are alienation, of course. Mm -hmm. And indeed, with eco-criticism, we see also this ability to make us think outside of time, mm -hmm. our immediate present and sort of just thinking about that seems to be valuable in itself. You know, I'm really glad that uh, Marx has entered this discussion because I think it would be a mistake to look at the really terrible legacies of 20th century, quote, 20th century real existing socialism and use that as a basis on which to dismiss the possibilities for a Marxist eco-critique. What do you mean by that? 
What I mean by that is that, that, that there have been scholars who have looked at, say, ecological disasters left behind by Soviet communism, say, for instance, Chernobyl as one of the most famous, or the destruction of the Aral Sea, or closer to home, even the environmental problems around the Elba as it flows from, uh, flows out of East Germany and say, well, you know, uh, there really is no room for thinking about, uh, thinking about ecology with Marxism because, um, Marx is all about labor industry and those things are simply not compatible with a, with what we need for producing a more ecologically sustainable future. But the reality of what we call, of what we might call the Anthropocene is all about capitalist production, consumption, and labor processes. So, as you say, uh, Marxist critique is useful for thinking about the temporality of what we take to be nature, and also for thinking through um, simplistic, ahistorical assumptions about oneness with nature. And so I would point, for instance, to the critique that Marx has of Feuerbach and his notion of oneness with nature in uh, the German ideology. Marx says in the German ideology, well, I, of course we're one with nature. That's, that's always been the case. And he goes on to say that the problem with Feuerbach is that Feuerbach has a view of nature that, that doesn't take into account that nature also has a history. So he'll look at a swamp in Italy and forget that where he now sees a swamp in ancient Roman times, the nobility might have maintained a vast vineyard on that very site. Okay, I'm I'm still not sure I under, understand this example of Feuerbach that Marx gave about not understanding the the swamp, or I should say, not understanding the vineyard in the swamp. Can you explain that again, please? What is the significance of that? I would say that for Marx and what what comes through in uh, his attack on Feuerbach, there are two important takeaways. Uh, the first is the relation between human labor and natural things. So when we work, of course, the labor process transforms things that are in that are in nature, whatever it might be. So in this case, you know, cutting down forests or whatever to make whatever wood products. So that's the first thing. More germane to the critique of Feuerbach, though, is that nature itself is a social product, and this is increasingly so when our global environmental systems are affected by industrial production and consumption. So for instance, that the CO2 that comes out of my car affects what goes on in the Arctic. You know? Marx's critique of Feuerbach is that it's easy to look at it's it's easy to look at something that apparently has not been produced by humans or doesn't or is in no way connected to human history and assume that that is somehow some outside place. When really what Feuerbach is looking at is a formerly cultivated space that is overgrown. The point is that there can be something deceptive in looking at nature and assuming that it is quote-unquote virginal. Indeed, what that makes me think of is so-called nature and scarecrows. As we discussed earlier, we note that something is wrong with nature when it aesthetically is displeasing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, over the course of many hundreds or thousands of years, we might forget that whatever we're seeing actually has already been shaped by humans many hundreds or even thousands of years ago. Indeed, the Romans did drain lots of swamps and created all sorts of new geographical features in their empire. And it, it is clear that we might indeed forget that, because mm -hmm. if it's aesthetically pleasing, maybe that's just natural. Right. So our aesthetic sense can both guide us to recognizing environmental depredation, but it also might trick us. Mm-hmm. That's quite interesting, and right. I guess that's what Marx is trying to say to Feuerbach. Right. It's also one of the most important debates that uh, was taking place within eco-criticism. So on the one hand, there, especially uh, amongst the first generation of eco-critics, the so-called first wave, there's a desire to hang on to nature as a concept that is useful both for analyzing literature and for uh, organizing ourselves politically. On the other hand... Nature is also heavily ideological. As you say, the uh, the concept of nature can actually prevent us from understanding environments or ecology or whatever word you'd prefer to use. And so the concept of nature itself has also been the subject of major critique within eco-criticism. 
Yeah, indeed. I'm sure, just as we've said, there are many environmentalisms, there are many eco-criticisms, and indeed there are probably now dozens and dozens of competing definitions of what nature really is. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have time today to go through all of those, but at least we have a very strong way now to understand the importance of eco-criticism and ecology in literature. So let's move on to my uh, last two questions. First, where do you think eco-criticism will be going in the future? And then what are some of the biggest takeaways, generally speaking, that we should get from studying the environment and cultural history? So let's first start with where do you think eco-criticism is going in the future? Well, some of the most cutting-edge work right now I've already alluded to, and it has to do with challenging dualistic assumptions about nature, both on the right and the left. So breaking down, for instance, a kind of legacy of Cartesianism that, that reduces the entire world to the thinking self, yeah, the thinking subject. Anthropocentrism has a long history in Western thinking. It's been, in a cruder sense, the basis for ideologies that enable destruction, but uh, it has also hindered the emergence of a more robust environmental politics. And a lot of eco-critical work now takes very seriously the entanglement of human economic activity and what we are doing on the planet and to the planet. Eco-Marxist critiques do some welcome work in this area and help us get beyond ahistorical narratives of fall or ahistorical notions of some sort of virginal intact nature. And so if there's a political end to this, then I hope it is about more than just decrying destruction, but about helping us to inaugurate a more self-aware environmental politics. And you think this perhaps is the biggest takeaway that we can gather from studying the environment and cultural history. Maybe it just broadens our intellectual and aesthetic understanding. And in the process of thinking through art and thinking through literature, some of these ideas that have faced human beings for hundreds or thousands of years about mm -hmm. how we interact with the environment. Eco-criticism sort of helps us almost build a new sensibility. Mm -hmm. But I think this brings us back, though, to the question of why literature? That is to say that I'm still hesitant to peg some kind of external use to literature. That is that we should read Moby Dick, for instance, in order to respect the oceans. Maybe, um, but I don't really think that's that's the last word to say on Moby Dick. To me, I think the ultimate takeaway is that the value of thinking about of eco criticism and thinking about literature and the environment is that is that it helps us to see ways in which our thinking about literature and environment has shifted according to historical and cultural contexts. And so this isn't the same thing as saying that the non-human is a construct or some sort of figure of our collective imagination, as is sometimes charged. Studying environment and cultural history it helps us to put our notions of ecology in perspective. So Stifter and Rabe were not exactly leftists, but plenty of modern environmentalisms are heir to conservative proto-environmentalist perspectives, or what might have been conservative proto-environmentalist perspectives in another time and place. I'd say it's also important to be aware of how ideas of nature and ecological rhetoric are used, and not necessarily for good ends. So, for instance, Edward Abbey is celebrated for his, and rightly so, for his writing about nature and his ideas of resistance in the service of environmental protection. But he also favored a border wall. And now today, when Donald Trump compares immigrants to vermin that infest, he's implicitly using the language of parasitism and invasive species, upsetting notions of harmony and balance. That all echoes ecological rhetoric. And if anyone's been following the border crisis, then we know what kinds of ends to which that rhetoric can be put for actual human lives. When you mentioned the parasitism rhetoric, the various discourses of nature, once we start thinking about this, in fact, I don't mean to use the word in fact, but are a part of practically everything we say. Most of the metaphors we use are, of course, directly related to the natural world, the environment, mm -hmm. because this is what we live in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, helping us to see how we use natural metaphors and our concepts about nature to 
describe what's happening in society obviously is very a very important thing that we ought to pay much more attention to. So do you have any final points? I think what you the point that you just made is very important and something that everyone listening should bear in mind. It's easy and very common to appeal to nature as something that is static and normative and unchanging. And when we hear politicians appealing to nature or using nature-related language, or when we're tempted to do that ourselves. Uh, we need to be conscious of it, because it's a very easy kind of rhetorical trick that can sometimes have very terrible political ends. You know, I started this podcast today by saying we would not be discussing climate change politics or science, but in at the end of the day, what we in fact are doing is discussing climate change, politics, and science. So I apologize if I misled anyone. But I think what we learned today, for me, that's very important, is how our thinking about the environment affects what we do every day and the decisions that politicians make, indeed, the decisions that we make ourselves. And so that is a very valuable lesson. And I'm very happy that Dr. Phillips was here to help me understand this. And I hope you understand it better now, too. Thank you again, Dr. Phillips. Thank you, Dr. Salah. If you enjoy The Transatlanticist, please support the show by subscribing for free with iTunes, TuneIn, or your podcast provider. Also, please be so kind as to give us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews really help us to keep the show going, so please give us a review. If you would like to provide comments, suggest topics, or recommend guests, I'd love to hear from you please send me an email at asola at americacentrum.de. And thanks for listening. Uh-huh.